So good to be here this morning. Uh, uh, we're going to uh, continue to look at Second Peter this morning. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter one. We'll be looking at verses sixteen through twenty-one. Well, growing up, uh, we had several big family get-togethers each year. Uh, we have fond memories of those. I'm sure you do as well, uh, whether it was Christmas and Thanksgiving at Grandma's house uh, in Chickasha or whether it was the 4th of July or a Halloween party at uh, Mom and Dad's house out in the country. Uh, we, we just had these big get-togethers, and, and somehow they always ended up including more than just family. Um, but we had a lot of fun at them. But for a few years, uh, for Halloween, we decided we wanted to have a spook trail down on the creek and so as you can imagine, there's lots of preparation that goes into that. Uh, you've got to get that trail ready. And so it comes down to you've got to mow, you've got to weed eat, uh, you get to cut brush back, I should, what I should say, you, you get to cut down small sample, uh, saplings, uh, trim the trees, you had to build steps because the ground was uneven and you didn't want anybody to twist an ankle at night and build bridges across the creek that would only get washed away the next spring when it rained. Uh, but those kind of things, et cetera, there's lots of uh, preparation that went on. And so after spending probably the better part of a month getting the trail ready, we always had this one last thing we had to do, and that was to put out the trail lights. And so what we did is we took little tea candles and, and stuck them in a mason jar and had some sand in the bottom of it, and, and we would line the whole trail with those little tea lights in those mason jars. And so this way, no matter where you were on the trail, you had a light to guide you along the creek because you didn't want to fall in the creek. That'd be bad. And so in the dark of night, there was a light to guide you back home. Well, in the first half of chapter 1 of Second Peter, Peter reminds his readers of what they've already been taught and really, by extension, he reminds us what we've been taught. He says in chapter 1 there that all things pertaining to life and godliness have been granted to us by Christ. So everything we need for eternal life, for, for salvation, has been given to us. Everything that we need to live a life of godliness has been granted to us. We've been given his great promises. We have escaped the corruption of the world that's caused by sinful desires. And because these things are so, we're to make every effort to supplement our faith with the qualities of virtue or, or moral excellence that we talked about last week or knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, this effort is made knowing that we've been granted what is needed for this godly living. This godly living keeps us from stumbling. And, and in fact, in verse 11, Peter goes on to say, he says, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, this is very similar to what Matthew, or what Jesus has to say in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, he he goes on to say in verse 22 and 23, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Something more than works is required, not something less. What is required is faith, and a genuine faith works. This is the point that Jesus is making in Matthew 7, and this is the point that Peter's making in 2 Peter chapter 1. And Peter says, remember this. So our passage this morning is a continuation of Peter's encouragement. He, he's writing to combat the errant teaching that has called into question Peter's own teaching and even the gospel. In fact, it becomes apparent a little later in the book of Second Peter, uh, in chapter 3, that the return of Christ is even being called into question. So in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 4, uh, just to sum it up, Peter says, I've been writing to you to stir you up, right? This sounds a lot like chapter 1, by way of reminder that you might remember what? The predictions of the holy prophets, the commands of the Lord through the apostles, and and the reminder that scoffers will come, and those scoffers will say things like, where is the promise of? of his coming. And so these false teachers have come into the church and they're saying Jesus isn't really going to return. And based on that fact, these false teachers say there's no real reason to live a godly life. I mean, we see that in 2 Peter 2 in verse 2 in verse 13 in verse 18, but if we just take a look at 2:12 through 14, just to kind of summarize again here, Peter says that these false teachers are really they're just irrational animals. They're creatures of instinct. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're reveling in their deceptions. They have eyes full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. And they entice unsteady souls. So in, in the face of this onslaught of wicked teaching, what does Peter do? Well, Peter points them to a guiding light in the dark of the night. A guiding light that will lead them home. And so with this in mind, if you would stand with me as we read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21 this morning. If you'd stand in the honor of God and the reading of his word, if you're able. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention, 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us a light. And Father, that we don't have to wonder what you want. We don't have to um, seek aimlessly for a way home. For you have provided all of this for us in Christ Jesus and testimony and evidence of it in your word. And so, Father, as we look at your word this morning, may we not fall prey to the thinking that Jesus isn't coming back, that it doesn't really matter how I live. For, Lord, we have a hope and a certain knowledge that Christ will, in fact, return. And when he does, Father, judgment will come. Judgment upon the sins of this world. But, God, we need not fear that judgment If we know Jesus, and if we know him, he will be our light for all eternity, forever. Father, if we do not know him, if we would be like these false teachers who would deny his second coming, who would deny any need for obedience, Father, we will be found guilty of our sins, separated from you, and justly punished for our wickedness. As a Lord this morning, may we be encouraged to continue in steadfastness, in, in godliness, knowing that the Holy Spirit is producing these virtues and these qualities in our life. Lord, knowing that Christ is going to return and looking ho- uh, forward to it with, with hope and expectation. So, Father, we thank you for your word here in Second Peter. Give us wisdom as we study and read it this morning. Lord, may the Spirit apply it to our hearts. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So before we jump into this Second Peter passage here, I want to real quickly look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And you'll, you'll make the connection here in a moment, I think. Uh, but Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses, or the three witnesses, shall a charge be established. And there are other places in the Old Testament we see similar ideas like this. But here God is instructing the Israelites to have confirmation before establishing a charge for a criminal offense. Well, here in Second Peter, Peter is doing something similar. He's using a similar idea to confirm the truthfulness of what he's been teaching. He now directs his readers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ after spending some time talking about the virtues that, that we are to uh, make every effort to supplement our faith with. So now he moves on to this second coming of Christ. He has been teaching that Christ will come again. As we've already seen, the false teachers do not believe this. And if Christ, if his coming's not real, and if it's a myth, 
then why continue to live godly lives? This is the, the rationale of the false teachers. But Peter, he stops. He says, no, I have two witnesses here. Two witnesses to the truth that I've been teaching. Two witnesses to the truth of Christ's return. And these two witnesses are first, Christ, and secondly, the prophetic word. So let's start by looking at this first witness that Peter is going to call to the stand, if you will. Peter reminds us that, uh, of something that he has heard and seen, something that happened during Christ's transfiguration. And so the transfiguration is found in the book of Matthew in chapter 17. If you want to flip over there, I'm, I'm just going to summarize it. But in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8, basically this is what happens. Jesus is on the mountain. He takes Peter and James and John along with him. And there he is transfigured. And so what does that mean? Well, in, in part it means that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And that his clothes became as white as light. And, and while this was occurring, if you remember, Moses and Elijah show up here at the mount. And Peter's like, well, let's get some tents made, you know. And, and as he's thinking about that, not seeing the, the importance of the, the, the moment, out of a bright cloud, the voice of God speaks. Excuse me. And the, the voice of God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so when the disciples heard this, they fall down on their faces and are terrified. So as we think about this, Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses to Jesus' majesty here at the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what Peter's telling us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. At the Transfiguration, Jesus' face, it, it shone like the sun. His, his garments were as white as light. This is a peek into the glory that is Christ's, right? Just a glimpse here on earth of what Christ, what his glory is like in heaven. And so the majestic glory of God in verse 17 is the majesty of Christ in verse 16. In verse 17, we're told that Jesus receives honor and glory, and, and this is most likely a reference to a passage in Psalms. In, in Psalms 8, 4 and 5, it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly, be heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this, this is a passage that the writer of the book of Hebrews relates to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2. So the glory referenced here in, in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, is the, the bright illumination of Christ's faith, his face and his clothes. Jesus' face and clothes, they match the bright cloud that is really a manifestation of God's glory in Matthew's account of the transfiguration. The glory of Christ is the glory of God. And the honor Jesus receives most likely refers to what the voice speaks here on the Mount of Transfiguration. If we look at verse 17 of 2 Peter chapter 1, we see it says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Peter hears the voice of God. 
and the voice of God is testifying to the person of Christ. This testimony seems to connect with at least three different passages in the Old Testament. So just real quickly, I want to flip over there and look at some of these, and you might want to jot these down and look later, but Psalms 2-7 would be one of these. Genesis 22, verse 2. Isaiah 42, verse 1. So let's just quickly look at these. Psalm 2, verse 7 says this, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So here God acknowledges Jesus as his son, right, on the mountain of transfiguration, making reference most likely to this passage in Psalm 2, 7, which is connected to the anointed king. And so here in just a real brief statement, we see that Jesus is the anointed king of Psalms 2. If we think about Genesis 22 and verse 2, this is a, a, a story that's familiar to us, right, about Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. And here God says to Abraham, he says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Isaac, Abraham's firstborn, his only son, whom he loves, is to be an offering. Now in, in Isaac we see a type of Christ here. Um, For now, Christ, the beloved Son, is to be an offering. And so the connection here is seen really better in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which was commonly used in the first century A.D. And in fact, the the words used here um, in uh, Genesis 22-2 there are are identical to uh, what is used in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he says... um, that Isaac is not only him who you love, but in the Septuagint it says, your beloved son Isaac, or Isaac, your only son Isaac, your beloved. And so here we see that Jesus is the anointed kingly son of God. He is the beloved son to be sacrificed. If we think about the connection in Isaiah 42 verse 1, where it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So here, this is uh, in in a, a section of the book of Isaiah talking about the suffering servant and the songs there of the suffering servant. And so this one... Uh, here, the one in whom God is well pleased or in whom God delights is Jesus. So the passage, speaking of the suffering servant in Isaiah, and so we see Jesus is the kingly son of God. He's the beloved son who will please his father and who will, be, who will suffer and be sacrificed. And so then on top of all of this, Peter knows all too well the passage from Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is speaking, and Moses has this to say in verse 15. He says, The Lord your God will rise up for you, a prophet like me, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, which references back to what is said in the Mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew, right? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. 
And so here, as, as Peter sees this, he's familiar with this. He makes reference to this in the book of Acts in chapter 3 as he's speaking at the portico called Solomon's. Uh, but he recognizes the fact that there's a prophet like Moses, but here at the Mount Transfiguration, the prophet like Moses is on the holy mountain with him. And so just think about this. Think about what we're, what we're seeing here. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the suffering servant in whom God is pleased. Jesus is the prophetic king or prophet king upon God's holy mountain. And all of this is confirmed by God himself here upon the Mount of Transfiguration. And so these teachings, they don't come from Peter. These are not his own ideas. This is, this is not Peter's own interpretation. The things which Peter has taught, the the godly living that he's calling believers to live, the, the second coming of Jesus, these are not his own creation. He has been with God, and he has heard from God, and they have come from God. These truths have Christ as their source, and Christ is a sure witness. Now, the second witness that we see Peter is going to call to the stand, we might say, is the prophetic word. And so by prophetic word, I believe Peter means the scriptures. And we can, we can fine-tune that some to, to maybe talk about specific prophetic passages in the Old Testament. But in general, I would say it applies to all of the scriptures. And of course, for him, what that would mean would be primarily the Old Testament, Although I would note that even now in 2 Peter chapter 3, just a few, verse, uh, few chapters ahead, in verse 15 and 16, he connects the writings of Paul with Scripture. And this is what he says. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to the, uh, in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And note this phrase, as they do the other scriptures. Right? What Paul has written in his letters as he's discussing these things, and, and some of them are hard to understand, the ignorant and the unstable twist, as they do the other scriptures. That wording would indicate that that, Paul, uh, that Peter sees Paul's letters as Scripture. We might also note that in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he equates a passage from Luke with Scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, he says this. This is Paul speaking. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so obviously the context here is different than, than where we're at, but I want to focus in on the last part of verse 18 there. So the first quote there, uh, where it says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, well, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. But the second phrase the second one that says the laborer deserves his wages is not found in the Old Testament. 
In fact, it's only found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. These are the words of Jesus. And so Paul understands this saying of Jesus as Scripture, or, or possibly even at this point, he actually uses the exact uh, Greek phrase that is recorded in Luke. He may even see the Gospel of Luke as Scripture at this point. And so all that to say that Peter might have more than the Old Testament in mind, but surely nothing less than that. And so notice what he says next here in verse 19. And this, this is a, a difficult. Uh, in our ESV Bible, it says, more fully confirmed, at least if you have the 2016 ESV. Um, other Bible translations might say something like, something more sure, or perhaps a more sure word. Uh, you'll find a slightly different reading in almost every English translation. Um, the way Peter states this in Greek is somewhat grammatically confusing, and so it's very hard to know exactly how to take what he's saying. One of the reasons for this is that in Greek, the comparative word that's used here can sometimes also be used in a superlative idea, and not to get too much into grammar this morning and I'm not your guy anyway you want to talk to an English teacher for sure uh, but there's a couple of important things here to think about so if we look at Bible translations the the ESV uh, the English Standard Version the Christian Standard Ver uh, Bible the New International Version or the New King James Version most other translations along with those take this phrase as a superlative meaning something like more fully confirmed strongly confirmed, something completely reliable, or as the New King James simply says, confirmed. Thus, it's not that the prophetic word is a better witness than Christ and Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, although we, we can see that possibility in, in uh, translating, right, if this is a comparative um, but I don't think that's the intent here. Rather, it's that we have a certainty that the prophetic word is accurate and true. It's more firm. My tongue is twisted. More fully confirmed or strongly confirmed, right? There's a, there's a, a certainty to this. So it's a, a certainty that the prophetic word is accurate and true. It's not necessarily that it's better than the witness of Christ, we can be sure of its content. This makes the best sense of the passage if we understand what's going on in the flow of Second Peter chapter 1. For Peter finds a strong witness in Christ and his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. So if that were the case, why would he then turn around and undercut his own argument by saying, but the prophetic word is better than that witness? He's not comparing them. Rather, he's adding them. We don't have one witness but we have two witnesses. So then Peter proceeds to tell us why the prophetic word is certain, why it can be trusted as a second witness. He does this in a positive way and in a negative way. So look at verse 20 and 21, and you'll notice the negative way here. Uh, if we look at verse 20 first, uh, we'll see that it says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Right? Prophecy of Scripture is not someone's own interpretation. And then in verse 22, secondly, we read where it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Right? So prophecy of Scripture is not produced by the will of man. So taken together, 
the prophecy of Scripture does not come about by some man setting down and contriving a vision or a dream or divine speech. Prophecy of Scripture does not come by a man's own take on an actual vision, dream, or divine speech. Both the prophecy and the interpretation of these prophecies in the Scriptures are not the work of men. We should not think that the prophetic word is simply an exercise in religion. It's not man's attempt to discover God. It's not that man made up visions, dreams, and speeches. It's not that man was left on his own and and was trying to rightly understand what these dreams and visions and, and speeches given by God mean. No, this is not how prophetic word came to be. There is a surety to God's prophetic word, and this surety comes from the fact that it is not made by men. And we are not left with inaccurate understandings of what God has communicated. For if we go on in verse 21, we see the positive way in which he talks about the certainty of the prophetic word. And so in 2 Peter 1, 21, he, he continues to say, says, For no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men did what? Men spoke from God. How? As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So prophecy has its origin in God. God speaks it. God uses a means by which to speak it, namely men. Men are not the source, they're merely the conduit. They get the message to its destination. And so a second positive way we see the surety and certainty of God's prophetic word is that these messengers were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So not only did God speak through them, the Holy Spirit made sure that they got the message communicated accurately. God did not leave his message to the whims of his fallen creation. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God spoke through men and men wrote an accurate record or an accurate account of God's message. So not only do we have a reliable witness in Christ who is confirmed by God as God, we have a very certain witness in the prophetic word. For it was spoken by God, and it's God's word accurately written and interpreted. So these false teachers that have come into the, to the church that, uh, that Peter's writing to, they're leading others to disbelieve what Peter has taught. What they're really doing is they're finding themselves in opposition to God. In teaching that there's no return of Christ, they claim for themselves an authority and a knowledge superior to God. In dismissing the call to holy living, they give evidence that they are not from God. For someone from God would be carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking God's words, not contradicting it. And not only do we have the prophetic word as a witness, but God has given it to us as a guide. It serves as a guiding light. It gives us direction. It gives us instruction. It gives us knowledge. And in some ways, it is through the guiding light that we know God. The world is a dark place. To follow the false teachers in Second Peter is to wander off the path. To leave the lamp shining in the dark and seek a different route. A route that will only end in death. No, what Peter has taught these, believe, uh, these believers 
is good and true, for it comes from God, and it comes from his word. And so we have the light of the world and the lamp of the word giving guidance, and we would do well to pay attention to them. So this twofold witness to the truthfulness of Peter's teaching gives evidence that he does not follow cleverly devised myths back from verse 16, right? This is what he's been accused of by these false teachers. This is not something made up in order to deceive. This is not a mythological teaching device. Peter's proclaims, uh, what Peter proclaims is the truth of the gospel. And without this truth, Peter's readers and you are left helplessly lost. To be opposed to this truth is to be opposed to God. Christ will return, praise God. And until that day, God's people are to live holy lives, bringing glory to him. Peter points out that the return of Christ is not myth, but rather mourning. Look again at verse 19. Verse 19, he says, And we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until... The day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So the prophetic word, will certain, uh, w- while certain and sure, is really but a lamp that serves for a purpose or for a time. I mean, we, we need only think of uh, the, the, the end of 1 Corinthians 13 in, in verses 8 through 12. Let me read this to you. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I've been fully known. And so right now we see dimly, but there's a day coming. We have a lamp on the path now in the prophetic word, but we look forward to the dawn when the morning star will rise in our hearts, a day when the glorious light of God will return and never leave, when there will be no no night there, there will be a day when there's no need for the sun or moon, right? As we think about the book of Revelation in chapter 21, for the glory of God and the lamp of the Lamb will light all. So do not lose heart. The world is dark, but God has given us a lamp in his word. Pay attention to it. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Treasure it. For it's God's self-revelation to us. Obey it. Live a life that gives evidence to the work of God in you. And know that the day is coming when the lamp will be overpowered by the Creator. To Him be glory forever and ever. So in conclusion... We think of this twofold witness. We see the witness of Christ. We see the witness of the prophetic word that says what Peter has been teaching is true. It is from God. It is from Christ. It is from the word of God. And so Christ's return is not some cleverly devised myth, but the coming dawn. 
So we do well to pay attention to the prophetic word, for it is true, and it is a guiding light that God has given us in the current darkness. So we're to make every effort toward godliness and know that though the night is dark, the dawn is coming, and with the dawn, the glorious light of Christ, a glorious light that will never leave us again. So this morning, brothers and sisters, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have a hope to look to. We have a light to guide us on the path even now. But if you're here this morning and you don't know God, let me share with you about an infinitely holy God who's perfect in every way, who's righteous and just, the creator and ruler of all. And in that creation, he made man. He made man to be the pinnacle of creation. He designed him to bear the image of God for his glory. And yet man man was disobedient. We are disobedient. We are willfully rebellious. We desire to take God's place as ruler of our own lives, of his creation. And in our rebellion, we are imperfect and unholy. We are unrighteous and unjust. Our rebellion has earned us, according to Romans 6.23, separation from God, eternal death. But praise be to a good God. He makes a way where there is no way. His Son, truly God and truly man, perfect in every way, without sin, comes to earth lives a perfect life, and then makes the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. He cleanses us from our sin. He gives us his perfection and his holiness. He gives us his righteousness. He grants us new life and all that is needed to live a godly life. But it's not enough to know that. It's not enough to know about God, to know about Jesus, to know about salvation. We must respond. So let me ask you this morning, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ alone, will you respond today? The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if you would have Jesus as your only hope in life and death, And if you would acknowledge Jesus as Lord, then repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and his work to save you. For the righteous wrath of God will fall on all sin. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for so great a salvation. God, it's not dependent upon ourselves to clean ourselves up, to be right before you. God, you've done all of that. You've taken care of that. And so, God, that we place our faith and trust in Christ alone. We are made new creations. And all that pertains to godliness and all that pertains to life is given to us and granted to us by you. And your promises are granted to us. And so, Lord, may our lives look different. May we live in obedience to your word. God, may you be glorified in our lives. And, Lord, as we go through the dark of night in this world and we go through the the sin and the temptation that surrounds us father may we not be led astray may we not steer off from the path but may we follow the guiding light you've given us in christ and, and in your word 
And Father, may we follow that light knowing that that light of the prophetic word is pointing us to the dawn of a new age, the coming of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may he be praised. And Father, may we be encouraged. And may we be steadfast and endure. And Lord, may we be obedient. May we love you. Father, I pray this morning, if somebody doesn't know you, that they would know that today is the day of salvation, that they would place their faith in Christ alone to be saved. Lord, those of us who have, may we rejoice in that. May we seek wisdom. May we seek understanding. May we seek help in obedience, knowing that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, so may we be found to work alongside him. Lord, may we make every effort to glorify you with the lives we have. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.